Welcome to Built for Life, the podcast dedicated to socially conscious property professionals who believe the future can be better than the present and your property decisions make it so. So to all of the innovators, this podcast will give you behind the scenes access to industry leading experts and researchers on how they think, create, analyze and deliver the best buildings in the world extracting their key advice, information, and considerations that you can apply to your personal and professional life. This is Adam Hines with my co-host, Jordan Ralph. Welcome to the Built for Life podcast. Welcome to another episode of the Built for Life podcast. And today is a very, 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 triple very important episode. And I know uh, that every episode that we do is very important but this is one of the the most important topics we've covered because today we're looking at the future of the property industry and how the the huge changes that we're all experiencing in sort of life people's lifestyles consumer lifestyles and climate technology legislation all over the UK and all over the world how that's influencing how we should be designing and building and operating property assets so it's really no secret that that this year has accelerated change, and obviously we we don't expect the future to be any different. We expect a lot of chaos, and we're having to make adaptions as we go to ensure that we don't end up with uh, a lot of property liabilities and and we get left behind. So today we're very lucky to have the head of ICNE Futures with us, Dan Jestico. Um, and Iceni Futures, just as a bit of a background for those that do not know, Iceni Futures was is, has been recently set up to provide uh, future strategic advice to the property industry to minimise the threats and maximise opportunities for yeah anyone who's building or designing properties. So Dan, a huge welcome to the show from Jordan and I. Thank you very much, Adams. It's a pleasure to be here. Welcome, welcome, Dan. Very, uh, very you. happy to have you to have you here. So you're going to get you're going to get grilled to pieces. I hope you're ready. For oh, I'm looking forward to it. <laughs> <laughs> so I think the beauty of this, though, of just to jump in before you kick us off, Jordan, is it's you can't be wrong because it's just your future assessment of uh, of the future, which can change every day. So that's that's a nice thing. So don't be scared about about being quite out there because no matter what you say, it can't be wrong. Well, you can you can be held to account on what you said. I mean, provided that no one's recording things like this. <laughs> no, no yeah, one's we'll recording. Caveat: that. That it's, it's as, as of today, this is your future assessment. Fair enough. Yeah. Fair enough. Yeah, it, expi- it expires at the end, so don't worry. <laughs> so yeah, I think let's um, let's just get started straight away and and start talking about your new, I suppose, venture or or the new um, venture of Iceni and Iceni Futures. Can you perhaps tell us a bit about why it was launched and, and and what it does, what it's set up to do. Yeah, thank you. Um, so basically, the the what I was until recently, I was running the Iceni Sustainable Development Team, and that basically looked at sustainable development along the lines of of, of holistic sustainable development. In that, um, development shouldn't just consider environmental sustainability, but should also consider social and and economic sustainability and to do to focus on one to the detriment of the others is is to create something that's not really fit for purpose. Um, and there are, there are numerous examples of buildings that have, have, have kind of not really considered 
all three pillars in, in a holistic nature and, and, and haven't really done so well. Um, but then we realized that, that sustainable development was actually driving um, property decisions that weren't necessarily in, um, providing development that's future-proof. So as well as um, a changing climate, we've also got changing lifestyles. I mean, the, the, as, you, as you pointed out, our lifestyles have never changed more rapidly and more unpredictably than they have in the last kind of year or so. Um, at the same time, technology is having a massive impact on how we how we design and operate buildings, um, particularly looking at things like transportation um, and digital connectivity has a, has a has a significant impact on how and where we do business, how and where where we socialise, and indeed how and where we live. So the point of Iceni Futures was to take all the good stuff from Iceni Sustainable Development, again looking at, at, at sort of climate change, but also incorporating actually lifestyle um, and technology change, policy changes, and basically um, looking at all sorts of change and barriers to development across the, the built environment life cycle and working out how to make development future proof. Um, because buildings are obviously there for a very long time. The buildings we're building today are still going to be standing in 2050 when, we, when we're operating under a net zero carbon economy. They might well be, be operating in um, uh, 2100 when we're hoping to see emissions reduction um, to keep temperatures below sort of 1.5 degree target. So we need to be thinking about how we design our buildings now to make sure that they're adaptable and flexible to accommodate future change. You, you mentioned 2050 there and the, the, the legislation around um, net net zero carbon. Is that was that the, the sort of driving force behind the, the shift from sustainability as uh, as as a environmental sustainability to look at it more holistically? Was that the driving force behind future? Uh, yes, there is. I mean, there's 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 a lot of things kind of wrapped up in that. I mean, the the, the first is is that basically the solutions towards to, to the net zero 2050 problem um, need to accommodate social justice. So we need to make sure that the solutions we're providing to the built environment don't leave anyone behind. Um, they're not just solutions for the, um, for the well-off and that, that we can provide built environments that are capable of adapting um, to all members of society um, and all members of the planet, basically, because climate change is not a, a local issue. It doesn't just happen in your street. It's happening to the whole planet. So we need to make sure that the, the solutions we're providing, um, you know, are capable of delivering social justice. Um, and they yeah. need to they need, and they need to take into account basically the um, anticipated changes to, to the economy. I mean, one of the, the key things that the Stern report established sort of many, many years ago now, was that we effectively need to decouple economic growth with carbon emissions. Um, and what we work really hard to do as an industry is demonstrate that the buildings can be produced, um, buildings can operate without necessarily emitting more carbon um, from, the, from their day-to-day -day operations. And that, that's an interesting, um, I suppose, a, a, approach. And it, I would say it's whilst these events and these issues and, and obviously social justice, as you put it, social impact, social value, health and well-being have, have been brought more to the fore this year than, than ever before. These are only issues that have been exacerbated by by the events of this year. They've always been there and they've been bubbling away slowly. 
I guess the, the way you've structured futures is is you know perfectly in response to addressing those 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 issues. What you mentioned a few solutions and a few um, ways in which you've been set up to help guide clients at those stages. What how, how does futures work on a typical project? Do you come in best at the very early stages and guide the design, or is it much more strategic? How's it how's it operate? Um, well, I mean, the, the, the first thing to say on that is that there is no typical futures project. Um, we operate <laughs> we, 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 we operate on sort of everything from new master plans consisting of, of, sort of thousands and thousands of new homes to um, sort of new um, urban infill developments, kind of um, eight new homes. So one of the one of the, the recent schemes we've worked on was a, was a social housing scheme for the London Borough of Haringey, where we delivered zero carbon homes that were 100% affordable for social rent. Um, the demonstration there was that, that, that zero carbon could be accessible um, to everyone. Um, but on the, on, just sorry, sorry. Dan. Out of, out, no, just I'm um, just on that point out of interest. Who who is it that? Um, you, you said, and I like the fact that you said that it's there's no standard project. You know, it's not like oh, we every time we get a, a new office block, we're involved and this is what we do. On that kind of, um, scattergun's the wrong word, but piecemeal approach, I suppose, with different clients. What sort of what sort of clients come to you? Is it a complete mixed bag? And and also, why do they come to you? Is there something in there drivers which is changing and they want that? I was just interested. Yeah, I mean, so so on one level. Um, People come to so people come to us for different reasons. Um, in certain circumstances and for certain building projects, the um, the value in the asset lies in its operation. So when you're talking about something like build to rent or offices, um, the developer um, generates a commercial return from the operation of that of that asset, um, and ensuring that asset um, remains in in, in sort of decent condition high quality, um, sustainable, low operating costs, reduces its obsolescence. So in, term, in, in that regard, future proof in that asset means that you've got lower refurbishment costs, lower maintenance costs and a longer asset life cycle, hopefully happier tenants with reduced void periods um, <clears throat> and greater financial returns. In certain circumstances, you're looking at much bigger strategic sites where People are looking to basically develop a, a, a site of tens of thousands of new homes that's going to be built out over decades and occupied decades after that. So in examples like that, sort of just deferring to what local planning policy requires is a bit of a red herring because local planning policy is never going to anticipate kind of how people are going to be living in a, in a generation's time. Yeah. Um, so. In those sorts of examples, what we're actually trying to do is is cast a uh, an umbrella over um, sort of trends and changes to set out what we call a sort of set of key vision principles and a and a future growth strategy that says that when the designs when the master plans are produced they need to be tested against this list of of priorities and key issues for this site and this location to say. Is this development, are these master plans going to be future proof as they come forward? Are they going to be robust enough to accommodate the changes that are likely to occur due to people's different lifestyles, changes in climate and um, varying priorities as people grow and change? Yeah, and, that, and actually, that's I suppose now you've explained it, it is the, the obvious point, I guess, in that it, it's those that hold and retain assets that have a greater interest in 
in in not having these redundant buildings in in the near future even um to ensure that they do they do meet those future needs which is um yeah no it's 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 very interesting um yeah as i mean a, it's, as a, and it's it, it's not just kind of the the operational assets that people are interested in so particularly organizations that um uh develop affordable housing products um a lot of those organizations are increasingly funded by real estate investment trusts um and pension funds and those pension funds and trusts want to see um environmental social and governance esg returns on their investments so demonstrating that things like um affordable housing are um future proof and uh, accommodate sort of future lifestyle changes is also really really important to demonstrating value to these uh investment funds then you 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 sort of touched on my next question here, but I, I want to just sort of rewind to, to unpick this and get a better understanding. So just to give a bit of background before I hit you with my question. So Jordan and I are, I don't know whether future proof nuts are the right word, but like definitely really passionate about looking into the future to understand how we can provide a greater positive influence. And this really was um, sort of why we actually founded our business in the first place. Because when I came over to the UK from Australia, when I landed here, I really, from a, from a built environment perspective, I was just shocked at how large the population was here, but how small the landmass was. Because obviously I was coming from Australia and it's the complete opposite. It's a tiny population and a huge landmass. And then I couldn't, couldn't just looking at things. So Jordan and I started chatting about this and we're looking at like future population growth and it just because the landmass is so small, I was just shocked at like there's got to come a point that with population growth that literally the UK runs out of land to build on. You just you just can't keep expanding because you just don't have the land. And then we started looking at that. And, and that's sort of what pushed us into this is that the result of population growth was really going to create a lot of built environment challenges um, and not just from a housing perspective, just also from a, a natural perspective of taking up farming land, taking up natural resources for, for buildings and then what the future impact of that is for the, for the bigger population. So this sort of really this topic really fascinated us. And was a big reason why we actually started or built a portfolio of properties because we sort of forecast that in the future properties is going to become a more and more of a, a more important commodity as it's just such a short supply here. But what I'm really curious because we've obviously done yeah a, a very basic future proof assessment ourselves and that's sort of what we aligned our business around. But what I'm really curious to understand with futures, I see any futures is what are you analysing? And I, I know that you said you've got your vision principles, but what are you actually analysing now to help make future decisions from? Yeah, okay, that's a, that's a good question. Um, it's interesting the point you made, though, about the, the UK being quite dense and quite built up. Um, the, 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 there was a bit of analysis I read recently that said that less than you, less than 6% of, of the land in the UK has been built on. And when you think about all the roads and sort of buildings and cities and everything like that, 6% doesn't sound like very much and, and makes you realise that there's still quite a lot of green um, and open space in the country. Um, mm -hmm. Anyway, what we, what we are trying to do is make sure that the, the land we have available is used to its most efficient resources. 
So as you say, they're, they're, they're not making any more land. And we want to make sure that land that we do have available is used productively. So what we do in our analysis is, is try and make the most of, the, of that land make sure that you're you're kind of um you know building in things like um food production into new development so that people are able to incorporate greens productive green space so there you've got green space that's doing two jobs it's providing amenity it's providing food it's providing leisure opportunities so looking at basically how you can incorporate different sort of lifestyle trends uh, within development um, we're also looking at the future of mobility. Um, you know, it, it's probably apparent to most people listening to this that we're on the cusp of a transport revolution. Um, the government's predicted that autonomous electric vehicles are going to be on our streets um, in the next year or so. Well, well, you may think that's a bit optimistic. Wow. Even if it's in the next, yeah, exactly. I mean, even if it's in the next five years, that's still going to has the potential to have a massive impact on the buildings and master plans we're designing now. So the concept of, of owning a car is going to become anathema, really, within a, within a sort of a, a decade or so, potentially, within, within our cities. And what we're going to be looking at is mobility as a service. Now, that has massive implications for how we design our, our streets, our buildings, our kind of um, amenity spaces. And it has the potential to give a whole slice of land back um, to, to people. But obviously, that's not there right now. So what we need to make sure is that the, the open spaces, the transport corridors are flexible enough to accommodate all these different transportation options so that when um, transportation trends change, you don't have to knock buildings down. You can just repurpose sort of um, existing spaces between buildings to either, either add greenery, remove greenery, dedicate space to certain transport uses. A bus lane might become an electric vehicle lane. You might have smart um, roads that are used for certain things during certain times of the day and then switch um, during rush hour, for example. Um, so the ability to be flexible and accommodate all these different mobility trends as they kind of grow and emerge and get established over, over the next 10 or 15 years is one of our key areas of investigation. I'm really interested by this mobility thing. Do you say one year, Dan? That was the yeah, I mean, it was, it, it, was, it was supposed to be 2021. Yeah. Um, was the original kind of date that, that, that the government said we're going to have um, autonomous electric vehicles on our roads. And there have already been, you know, they have essentially already been trialled in, in, I think it's Greenwich and in Milton Keynes, um, but they're not really on the roads. Um, but, you know, it, it shows you how quickly things can change. And we've had... You know, the internal combustion engine on the road um, for the last kind of 100 years. And that's been, that was pretty much it. The last transport revolution was when we switched from horses to cars. And, and everyone was sort of throwing their hands up in the air and going, Christ, what are we going to do? What are we going to do with all these horses? What are we going to do with all the wheel makers and the saddlers and um, all, the, all the industries associated with that? And, and you know, we're on the cusp of going through something again where... Um, you know, the, the, the need to drive will just become obsolete. Yeah, I, 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 you can definitely see that. And, and I know Adam's got a, a, a close friend of his works for a, um, a Mac car manufacturer as a designer. And that, that's definitely something that they've forecast for, for a number of years. But obviously, until that demand dries up and, and the facilities are there, it, might, it is a balance. But I'm excited by 
the prospect of repurposing land and buildings to especially in urban environments i think that the possibilities are endless as to what can be provided especially with car parks and as you say bus lanes and mm. um, i wonder you know just how busy autonomous routes will be just because it it, it, it will become i suppose it'd be, be less gridlock won't there there'll be less um yeah th- there will be be less impact on people's air quality as well i mean there's a startling yeah. um article the other day about just how poor some air quality has been in london contributing to people's health and asthma and i think these are some of the huge benefits and it's, i suppose that's why in principle you're you're looking at social justice so much as as a link to just how positive these decisions can be i guess that's what what yeah, down to it. just to jump just to jump in there to add to your your comment about car manufacturing jordan yeah that 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 is definitely true that i've got a um a friend who i've obviously won't name the company but he works for quite a uh, a prominent car manufacturer and yeah i've had a conversation with him about what they sort of see the future of the car industry as being and that they're already resigned to the fact that their their company effectively in the long term will essentially become redundant from what they are currently doing now um in that cars will become autonomous vehicles and there'll be no benefit of owning a top end car to a bottom end car because there'll be no performance differentiators because they'll all drive at the exact same speed so it will just be aesthetics that will differentiate cars of what it looks like as opposed to any performance uh, benefits so from their their perspective they were looking at how they can survive because um yeah as a business and it's just just interesting that how such a large industry which really the world revolves around can be decimated in in sort of you know the next however many years five ten fifteen twenty years or not. I don't know how yeah. long it will take but it's just yeah really interesting that you guys are looking at that um now in the uk i didn't realize that was happening so soon yeah absolutely i mean it it, it, it is going to happen faster than you know than you than i think anyone realizes yeah and my, my, one of the interesting things i want i want everyone who's listening to this to kind of try this sort of experiment i want you to to go outside and, and look at a, a road junction and look at how much furniture in that road junction is dedicated to traffic management. So traffic lights, signs, signposts, um, I guess, sort of, you know, all the bollards, and all, the, all the, the, the stuff that's in the street to kind of manage traffic. Now, if you had a completely autonomous traffic system, you'd have no need for any of that because it will be done automatically. So think of the potential changes that would occur to our our sort of public spaces in terms of getting rid of all this this stuff that's lying around in our streets to to kind of guide traffic and it, none of that's going to be needed anymore so you can kind of then see the potential knock-on benefits for just making places look a bit better um by having a bit instead of having traffic lights you could put um trees up instead of, at every traffic junction you wouldn't necessarily have to worry too much about sort of um uh signposting or anything like that continuous aut- autonomous vehicle routes so it kind of opens up a whole range of different sort of benefits in terms of not just the visual appearance but as you say air quality um you know air quality is massively detrimental to, to human health and um, particularly for people from from disadvantaged backgrounds you know it's been shown that 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 you know that the more exposed you are to air quality poor air quality the more likely you are to pick up other diseases that are unrelated to air quality just because it's increasing the stress on your body. So the, the, the sort of knock-on implications for this sort of thing 
um, as well as giving people a bit more space outside is, is kind of considerable. Interesting, so that on the on the back of those two um, principles that you've you've just outlined of um, mobility and green space in in looking at the the future resilience of of assets for clients. How, how do you how, how do you sort of weave in those elements into to current thinking? I mean, is it is it like a, a future consideration, or is it really planning through the helping to plan through the stages of design? These are some of the considerations that you'd need to be thinking about for for the next five years. Is that? Um, well, what we what we would kind of do is 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 try and enshrine these these kind of principles in a in a, a framework document that sits sits above everything, so that then as a say as say as someone drew up a master plan, you can then test the master plan, and it's it's basically what we do in sort of engineering where you kind of test a scenario, then you run a sensitivity analysis to see how robust your results are dependent on changing inputs. So if you vary the inputs and say instead of 50 cars an hour, I've then got 25 cars an hour, how does that change um, your design? Does it, kind of, does it mean your design still works? Does it mean that your design can be adapted and improved? Um, what if things go the other way? What if you go from having 50 private cars an hour to 100, say, a cardo vans an hour or something like that? How does your design then accommodate that? So what you basically want to do is get these frameworks established at the at the early stages of the project and then run these sensitivity analyses on the designs as they come forward to make sure that they're robust and flexible enough to accommodate these different scenarios that we're looking at. Yeah, no, I, I think um, I probably looked at it more as a, a delivery now, design now, and I, I guess the modelling is is as you say above all of that isn't it it really informs the, the bigger picture strategy rather than the actual what's the nuts and bolts of what we're delivering at this moment but I guess uh, Adam and I we don't use the term futures but we use macro context you know what what are the things that are in front of us now uh, yeah. or likely to be coming up that we can meaningfully be aware of and obviously 2050 is a is a huge one um, yeah and we just so, did a review on a design for a for a, a, a fund recently um of a new asset that they were building and we asked them what's the what's the the, the net carbon strategy for this building what's what's the plan having what they'd already confirmed the life cycle is going to be 65 70 years and they said well oh we're we're sort of looking at you know change of use in the future and we said but no this this is something you need to think about in terms of your life cycle costing this will really have an operational impact um which was going to hit right bang in the middle of that that target and it was astonishing to us just how little those big picture decisions were were really being considered obviously i think that's that will obviously change in the next year six months yeah. you know three and years but and that's that's one of the key finding is is the lack of adaptability we're seeing in, in sort of buildings um my favorite example of this was um where i used to live down in greenwich in southeast london there used to be this uh, a sainsbury's um, and it was built at the turn of the century, um, this century, obviously. Um, and it was built to be a really um, eco Sainsbury's. And it had sort of lots of natural materials. It had um, an eco park at the back, it had wind turbines at the front. Um, and it was a brilliant sustainable piece of sustainable architecture. Um, but the problem was is that as the, as the, the, the population of Greenwich grew around this building, um, Sainsbury's decided to go and build an even bigger supermarket to accommodate the, the, the future growth 
of the area down the road. Um, and because they wouldn't let the, the supermarket to another um, food retailer, um, they weren't able to let it to anyone else. So 15 years after being constructed, this eco building was demolished to make way for a whopping great IKEA. Um, so when you don't take account of kind of future adaptability and and potential changes of use of a building, you know you are, you end up with obsolescence. Um, then at the other end of the scale, you've got uh, buildings like the Oxo Tower on the south bank of the Thames, um, which has been through so many different uses in, in its lifespan. It's been resi, it's been commercial, it's been industrial, it's been retail. It's now got a restaurant on the roof. And that's just one building. And it wasn't designed to be any of those things. But the fact it's been designed with this long life, loose fit approach means that it's adaptable and can accommodate all these different changes. And it's still a, a, a really attractive building to look at. So would you say that's the main, the main, I suppose, mistake or shortcoming that you see developers or design teams making is just adaptability? Is there anything else that you see beyond that? Regular. Um, it's well. It's it's what one of the one of the key things I, I I always encourage people to do, and I know I know you you kind of um, follow the same ethos, is to record, monitor, and learn from from the projects you're working on. I think as kind of designers, we 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 sort of have a tendency to hand the keys over, turn our backs on a project, and move on to the next one without working out if the interventions we've set out, if the designs we've, we've kind of proposed and, and put forward and had built, are they working as intended? You know, do the, do the, the, expect, the experience of the people occupying those spaces, do they match what we've kind of set out and how they're going to use the space? How often do we go back and record people's experiences about what works and what hasn't worked so that we can go on and learn um, for the next project and say, you know what, we tried that, but we're going to be open about the fact that it didn't work possibly as well as we would have liked, but we've learned from it and we can make sure we don't make the same mistake in future because um, we've, we, you can see um, examples of things that have possibly haven't worked quite so well um, in, in buildings quite a lot of the time. Um, and where you, where you see this thing, you say, well, if we'd all go back and learn from this, maybe we wouldn't keep making the same mistakes time and time again. So I think... The industry needs to kind of um, do a lot more monitoring, post-occupancy evaluation and data collection um, to ensure that we are, you know, responsible for our work, really. Well, and that's something we, we definitely um, advocate is, is understanding and learning. That's the, the best way of you know, working out how to, to continually ensure your, your building remains relevant and and um, Perform, you know, financially perform and also socially perform. So I think that's that's definitely something that's that's crucial. In terms of the future's remit and and the work you've been doing, what um, do you have any sort of real life examples where you've helped clients make decisions to future proof their developments and then they've actually been incorporated? In, you know, obviously I appreciate that the advice you give is incorporated, but in terms of yep. the real future proofing elements that you're saying, these are some of the things. What what sort of things are you seeing being adopted at the minute so what we i mean what we are are trying to encourage people to do particularly on larger projects is 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 think beyond um zero carbon buildings so <clears throat> we have a fairly mature um zero carbon building um set of frameworks out there 
um, organisations like the UK Green Building Council and um, the um, London Energy Transformation in Initiative have set out really robust frameworks for delivering net zero carbon buildings that will give you zero carbon buildings in operation. What we now need to do as an industry is take a bit more of a, of a holistic view about how <clears throat> master plans work. So when you build a, a, a sort of new development or a new community, that involves roads. Um, the roads are there for cars. Um, and working out basically how you will um, reduce the emissions from private car from vehicle use across that master plan is going to be the next step in, in kind of talking about not zero carbon as a building scale, but zero carbon as a master plan scale. And that, that kind of makes everyone go and do a bit more thinking. But then when you do build out these, these big master plans, a lot of them involve um, a lot of tree planting, hedgerow planting. And trees, as we all know, are, are wonderful um, vehicles for, for sequestering carbon. They are nature's own carbon capture and storage units. Um, and we, we're investigating the engineering solutions to carbon capture and storage. Nature has been doing it quite wonderfully on its own many, many years now. Um, but obviously, the more trees you put within your master plan, as the trees grow, they'll absorb carbon. So you, thinking about master plans from a, a zero carbon master plan approach is one way in which kind of we're really helping developers to kind of think about not just how buildings can be zero carbon in operation and, and in their design process, but, but actually how people's lifestyles will be zero carbon once the thing is completed. Um, and it's ready, you know, you can you can design a uh, building with heat pumps that are fossil fuel free with PV panels on the roof. That will give you zero carbon buildings that's future proof and ready for a 2050 economy. But how are you going to incorporate all the electrical infrastructure that will allow people to use um, electric scooters, electric vehicles, electric delivery vehicles? Um, and then include sort of trees and planting to sequester any additional carbon that, that, that results from your master plan carbon footprint. So thinking about these things in a much broader scale is really kind of the next step in how we're helping people do zero carbon master plans. When you when you zoom out from a zero carbon building and looking at it at a master plan level, there are just so many aspects of people's lifestyles that we we probably overlook as being we, we probably don't consider them. Well, they're definitely not considered. But, just for I mean, example. You, you, but you guys do this in your work. I mean, your your health and well-being work is surely focused on, you know, encouraging people to lead healthier and, and healthier lifestyles. So you must be quite good at looking at how design interventions can encourage healthy behaviour. Definitely. And that, that is part of our health and well-being framework. But the, the thing I think that you've picked up on that I, I think is really overlooked across the industry is going beyond the building and actual people's physical lifestyles once that building is operational. And for example, let's say you've got a zero carbon building in a new community, but then that person needs to go get groceries. How do those groceries get delivered to their, their home? That is, a, is it a delivery van that drives to them, but then that delivery van is creating carbon? And then how, how do that? So it's just tiny little lifestyle factors that need to be considered which then give you a, a holistic picture of a, of a zero carbon development for its full life cycle and i think it's just those 
those tiny additional considerations that you are making that other people perhaps are not. And all of those add up to being a really, really big change and a really big improvement. Yeah, exactly. And, and a lot of those things are mutually beneficial. So when we talk about kind of a, a new development with the school at the heart of it, what, you, what you're basically doing is saying that, that people in that new um, development who want to use that school can get there using um, <clears throat> By, by bike or by foot um, and obviously that, that has sustainability benefits but that also has health and well-being benefits, it has air quality benefits, it encourages you to talk to your neighbours, I mean when was the last time you ever chatted to uh, a neighbour through a car window, it's hardly ever but as you walk down streets as you kind of meet people on the way to the shops and school because you're, you're on foot then you're much more likely to strike up those conversations and as we all know, you know, over the last few months, he can't be a bit of um, face-to-face interaction. Couldn't agree more. <laughs> certainly, uh, certainly craving the social time. Yeah, absolutely. And I think that's that's definitely something that's important. And community is is you know the strongest factor associated with, with quality of life as to, to what we've established through through our research. In, yeah, interesting, definitely. Dan, what you mentioned about um, the way we think about. Um, physical activity and, and how a building's design or a place promotes a healthier lifestyle. It, it was when I was um, actually did a, a talk with you guys um, a couple of months ago, and it's, it's actually just realising that, that sustainability and, and climate sustainability and health and wellbeing, social impact, they're not mutually exclusive. They are so intertwined and interlinked that you can't really ignore the two. When, when creating a development, exactly what you've just said in terms of this massive piece that we need to be working towards for 2050, but also the issues that we are facing now. And, that, and that's, I suppose, something that we've recognised is just striking that balance because it, it is difficult to have those conversations with clients to, to really explain these are some of the things you need to be thinking about because it can just seem so radical, yet there is so much data out there to just prove why we need to be thinking about these these decisions so that's it's something Adam and I absolutely love and we love talking about and and learning about because it is the future of of all of us what what we're trying to to achieave in in property and what we must achieve is there yeah and it's it's you're absolutely right because and and that that kind of chimes in with the future's way of thinking it's it's our traditional appointment structure would be like, right, we need to get transport involved, we need to get heritage, sustainability, archaeology, all these separate disciplines involved, and everyone will go off and do their own thing. But actually what you really need to do is bring those together because when you bring everyone together to actually work through these solutions with their own areas of expertise, you get two plus two equaling five, but in a good way. Um, yeah. you know, you're, you're greater than some of your parts is I guess what I'm saying and when you think about all the, the knock-on benefits that you might not think about because your area of expertise is doesn't really necessarily talk to other people but when you get everyone working together you can kind of accumulate all these kind of joint benefits and it, it, it really kind of speaks to uh, collaborative thinking and, and um, new ways of working. Yeah absolutely absolutely which probably brings us quite nicely on to, I suppose, uh, as, a, as a wrap up for, for what we've spoken about today. And, and just, you know, we, we've only just scratched the surface about just some of the, the, the you know, the depth that, that we must go into um, on this issue as, as a um, sector and as property professionals. What, what 
what would be your lasting words of advice for, for property providers, clients, consultants at this moment in time thinking about the future? Um, well, it would be just exactly that is think about the future. Um, your, your building um, is going to be there for, for many, many, many years. And in, in, in many ways, we should be proud of the things we build. Um, there, there's probably nothing more um, disheartening than having something you've worked on kind of knocked down after sort of 15 or 20 years. So now if you want to provide a legacy, if you want to provide buildings that are fit for the future, we've got to really think about how we accommodate those changes of use, those changes of function, those changes of lifestyle right from the get-go of a project. And if you don't, if you try and retrofit that stuff, it's quite difficult. So it, it is just trying to get involved and think about these things right from the earliest stages. Um, think about how the climate's changing because it, because it is changing and it's going to change more within our lifetime. Um, making sure that your, your buildings are future-proofed against temperature change um, and then other changing conditions is, is really, really important. Um, but also thinking about how people are going to use your buildings in future, you know, especially when we're talking about the design of new homes. Um, as we've all seen, everyone's now working from home um, where they've got the ability to a lot more. But um, does it, you know, does that necessarily carry through to all new homes? Um, are we designing every new home with the ability to work from home or is it just a, a select few? So it's making sure that those kind of decisions are, are properly filtered down into every sort of um, aspect of what we do, whether it's an affordable home or, or a luxury home, um, is really, really critical to ensure that as we recover from the pandemic, we do so in a, in a manner that's um, uh, socially just. Dan, love it. Absolutely love it. Where can people find and follow you? So um, I'm probably um, unique in that I, I, I don't really tend to do Twitter or Instagram very much. I kind of I like to get out of a, a screen when I can and, and, and just experience the, the, the fresh air and, and, and that. But um, I am on LinkedIn. Um, if you want to find me on LinkedIn, I'm there. But um, my, my company, I've seen projects. Um, we're, we, we do Instagram and Twitter and all of that stuff. So you can find more about the company and I've seen your futures there. Um, but yeah, I, I'm, I'm sort of a, a bit of a, a digital Luddite as it goes. <laughs> not, not very, kind of ironic, really. <laughs> Isn't it? Isn't it? No. So what we'll do is we'll put links to, uh, to you and your contact details. And if anyone wants to write you a letter, we can do it that way. If, uh, okay. if that's yeah, how you yeah. operate. Yeah, letter, letters are great. <laughs> <laughs> we'll put that in the uh in the show notes uh so anyone okay. can get in contact but dan that was um that was awesome thank you so much for your time um and thank you again uh, thank, thank you, you very dan. much gents. brilliant really interesting excellent thanks for listening to the built for life podcast if you learned something new today or found value from hearing from a different property perspective please comment on what you found useful as it helps us understand what you like and what you want to hear more of. And also please subscribe if you want more and most importantly, please share this video to the people in your network you believe will get the most value from the information as you are personally helping spread information and education across the industry. As they say, never doubt that a small group of thoughtful, committed citizens can change your world. And by you watching and sharing this, you are now part of that group. And just to finish, 
If you would like unlimited free access to the world's best research and resources related to health, well-being and the built environment, you can subscribe to the Life Proven Library where academic research, reports and case studies are regularly added. They're then reviewed in detail and the key findings are extracted into easy to use dot points and also a brief summary video. So you don't even need to read the reports, all the heavy lifting has been done for you as you can just watch the summary. So just head to www.lifeproven.co.uk and click on the button library at the top of the page. And as always, if you have a project, an investment opportunity, or you are interested in a collaboration and would like to discuss directly, you can contact us at adam at lifeproven.co.uk.